Extreme riding conditions can be extremely rewarding. Africa, Australia, both amazing destinations, both can be deadly. Today you're going to hear about the Great Australian Ride, an amazing journey across Australia that you can join next year. We're also going to speak with a fellow named Spencer Conway, who's made a film of circumnavigating Africa, and that film is going to be on your TV sometime soon. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coat. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. This is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Africa is the hottest continent on Earth, with about 60% of its landmass being made up of either dry lands or deserts. And it's the only continent to stretch from the northern temperate zone right on past the equator to the southern temperate zone. So it has everything from deserts to jungles and everything in between. It's made up of about 54 countries and covers an area of about 30 million square kilometers. That's about 11 and a half million square miles. But it's not just the makeup of its landmass that makes it unique. Life in Africa beats to its own tempo. And some say that it moves at a completely different pace than the rest of the world. But most will agree that to travel Africa, you must have patience. I waited at the border of Angola for three weeks, uh, lying on a piece of grass before they got me a visa to go. Motorcycle travelers will often refer to Africa as the real deal. The countries are vastly different, with well over a thousand languages spoken. Some have estimated up to 2,000 languages. And to travel Africa with your bike, 
you need what's called a carne, which is a type of guarantee that you buy in advance from a third-party organization, a, a motor club, or depending on where you are, um, some sort of organization that will, will make a financial guarantee. And what they do is, when you enter a country, you show them your carne, and it's stamped. And if you leave that country without your motorcycle, that carne gives the government the ability to take money from you, or take money from the carne, which is usually many times the value of the motorcycle, as to amount to what they call an illegal importation of a vehicle. And to complicate matters further, some areas are still in conflict zones, and it seems to change from time to time, area to area. And they're either extremely dangerous to travel, or it's just not possible at all, and you have to find a way around. So you can see why riders refer to it as the real deal. The payoff for the motor traveler is immense, with friendly, beautiful people and cultural experiences, diverse scenery, and some of the most open and wild terrain that you'll find to ride your motorcycle in. Many riders have explored Africa by motorcycle, and Joe Russ was on here not long ago and told us about her story about circumnavigating Africa alone, first woman to do it. Today, we have a different type of story about circumnavigating Africa. Spencer Conway was an English teacher with a desire to explore by motorcycle. He chose Africa as his ride for various reasons that you're going to find out coming up in this interview. But before he left, he turned that planned ride into a Discovery Channel-sponsored agenda in which he's the star of his own reality series, expressing his trials and tribulations on screen for the world to see and critique for that matter. He suffered pain, fear, as well as jubilation. And in the end, he becomes a full-time modern adventurer, an adventurer for the couch potatoes that dare not. I'm speaking with Spencer Conway, who has done a project he calls African Motorcycle Diaries. And that's a series to go on TV. He has a DVD. He has a book. Now, what's this all about? Well, Spencer, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Spencer, let's talk about, to begin with, um, you're from the UK and you were brought up in Africa. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Absolutely. I was born in the UK, but I I left at two months old because my father works for overseas development and we went to Kenya. I stayed there until six and then I went to Swaziland and had my education there. And then I went to Edinburgh University in Scotland after that. And then you were back to live in Africa? That's right. I went back to Swaziland. But now I'm actually over here because I'm uh, busy promoting uh, African motorcycle diaries. Oh, so you're in the UK right now? I am indeed. I'm in London. You're an English teacher. I am an English teacher, but that is a while back. So let me me just set this up here. You're an English teacher from the UK living in Africa. Um, And what we're about to talk about is a motorcycle journey around Africa. Where do you bridge the gap between the English teacher and the motorcycle adventurer in you? Okay, um, I did enjoy English teaching, but I'm a real outdoors person, and I got my first monkey bike um, when I was four years old, and from then I was absolutely hooked, and I always rode, and I really wanted to make it a a career, in a sense, and I just came up with this ludicrous idea of circumnavigating the whole of Africa, um, 34 countries, 55,000 kilometers, 
I really wanted to, because of the Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, I, I sort of wanted to do twice the distance they did and uh, try and do it on a budget. So you watched Ewan and Charlie do their long way round, um, and then you decided you were going to turn it into a project that you wanted to do. So the, the initial, the impetus for the for the trip was you looking for adventure. It, yes, it pretty much was looking for adventure. And I must say another person that did inspire me was uh, Che Guevara. I don't know if you've seen the Motorcycle Diaries video, which is where I've uh, actually stolen my African Motorcycle Diaries name from. Um, that was his trip when he was a, a young doctor around South America. Well, you have this idea of riding around Africa. Where does it go from there to making a TV series? Well, it sort of snowballed. It was very strange. Uh, I, I was doing a couple of shows and a couple of talks in England, and I got approached by Diesel Films, who worked with Discovery, and they said it would be ridiculous not to document this. So, um, of course, I accepted. And then, unfortunately, people like bad news. And when I was involved in a shooting in Kenya, it became quite big news. Yeah, we, we might want to clarify that the <laughs> when you said involved in a shooting. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but we're going to get to that. So let's just leave the listener hanging for that one. We'll get to that eventually. But so you put this together, you, you found a, a production company interested in it. D did you get signed up for, I mean, did they tell you that the Travel Channel is going to pick it up at this point? No, it didn't work out like that. What I did get, which I was very pleased about, I got the motorbike from Yamaha, but I didn't get any sponsorship at that stage. I did all of it off my own back. I did three jobs um, at the same time for about two years to raise the money for it and, um, yeah, funded it myself. So why would Yamaha give a guy that's a school teacher um, that doesn't have, uh, well, you're not a movie star, and you don't have the round-the-world riding experience, why would they decide to give you a motorcycle? What was it about your story that inspired them? It's a very good question. I'm not really sure. Uh, I think it's because I just I, I gave off some sort of confident air. I think I was acting up a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I did tell them that I was going to uh, make a series of programs. I did say I was going to have a DVD and book. At that stage, I didn't really know. So I was sort of hedging my bets. But they, they believed in me, and it's all come true, actually. So they fixed up with the Yamaha the XT660. Great bike for that. Oh, thank you. Tell us about turning it into a charity run. Yeah, I, I just thought, you know, add, add another, another um, string to my bow and raise some money for Save the Children. Uh, I've actually got two daughters, and I don't want anyone to really suffer like a lot of children do so what i did was i raised the money and i contacted save the children and i asked them if i could visit some of their projects to see exactly where the money went which i did in luanda and in drc and yeah it was amazing you hoped to raise twenty-eight thousand pounds did you manage to do that um i raised thirty-two thousand pounds thirty-two thousand pounds so you raised that money plus the money you needed to to pay for your trip to go around africa yeah that's correct i did wow. and uh Unfortunately, Africa's not as cheap as it was when I was a youngster, so um, I was lucky that I was happy with camping. Well, when all was said and done, um, you're saying that you're the, the first person to complete a solo navigation of the African continent without the benefit of a support team. Is, is that an official uh, uh, you know, Guinness Book tag? I would not like to say it's official. I would like to say it has been searched on the internet, Travel Channel have checked, and we haven't as yet come across someone who's done it solo and unsupported. This has to be part of the interest uh, in, like, as far as the Discovery Channel goes, to see something like this filmed. 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased for the biking community because I don't think that we are on television enough. So I, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I'm going to try and, uh, you know, pull in and link with all my friends like Lois Price and um, Ted Simon and Sam Manicorn and, you know, try and try and push it forward a bit. I can't agree with you more, Spencer. I mean, I think they waste a, a lot of space on the air on all that other stuff. It should all be biking stuff, shouldn't it? I completely agree with you. We don't need these uh, reality singing shows, do we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Let's talk about your trip. So okay. you got yourself ready. You, you, you've got your bike there. You're prepared. Give us an overview of what you hoped to achieve to begin with. Okay, my, my main maxim, my main uh, ethos was to just take it day by day, border by border, because if I, if I thought too much about the distance I'd have to cover and the problems I faced, you know, it would become a little bit too daunting. So I just, I just took it like that. Um, I left from Biddenden in the pouring rain with about 60 Hells Angels who, uh, from Essex who uh, took me down to the border. Um, I was almost ready to give up then. I was completely and utterly soaked. But so one, once you get going, you know, your mind takes over and you, you carry on. Well, the idea was to film it right from the start, so or, or very close to the start. Let's talk about that. How do you film it? I mean, you know, you're saying unsupported. So is that you, you, don't, you don't have a crew riding along with you in a car filming you? No, I didn't have a crew or anything like that. What I did was I filmed myself. Um, I had a helmet camera, a mounted camera on the XT, and I had a handheld digital camera for what people call these diary cams. But obviously, without the, without the help of a crew, you have to do things like set up tripods, uh, do a, a ride by, go up to the bike, turn the tripod round, ride away. Um, you know, you've got to set up the shots yourself. And also, I did get some help from some of the locals, uh, asking them favors, you know, could you just take a shot of me here and there? Uh, I really just muddled it together myself. You know, I'm always surprised that something like the Discovery Channel takes footage that's shot from sort of low-end cameras. I mean, these are cameras that are consumer-grade cameras. Am I correct? No, actually, I I had a very good uh, HD camera. I didn't use a GoPro. Oh, I see. So no GoPro. You, so th- these are all fair-sized cameras you took with you? Yes, actually, it was ludicrous when I think about it from a safety point, because I had a huge camera about the size of a beer can on top of my helmet. So I would hate to think what uh, would happen if I'd crashed. <laughs> what did you expect that you were going to have to deal with on the road? Um, I, I think mainly it was uh, having, having a sort of system whereby you plan each day. So you, you get up in the morning, you get your bike sorted, you check through it, you, you decide how many hours you're going to ride, and then before, you know, a long time before it gets dark, you try and find a suitable place to camp, and then you end up with some sort of structure to your day, and it becomes a lot less daunting. And you went around the outside of Africa, is that how you, you fixed your route? I did, absolutely. Um, I'll give you my little party trick. I went from England, France, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Swaziland, South Africa. That's halfway. And then I went up the other coast, which is uh, Angola, DRC, Gabon, Cameroon, Nigeria, Benin, Togo, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Mali, Mauritania, Western Sahara, Spain, and back into England. When you're planning this, what were the countries that you, you looked at as being the real challenges? I think the Democratic Republic of Congo, because it's been very unstable, and also Angola, because it's had a 30-year civil war. But it's like everything in life, you mustn't listen to other people. Because when I got to Angola, it was absolutely stunning. Uh, A lot of damage. I mean, uh, the houses in the cities, they looked like dolls' houses, because they had no fronts to them. 
and you could actually see people, you know, having their breakfast, um, washing up, whatever, going by their day-to-day -day routine. But they were so friendly. It, it was an amazing country. So you know, you can't you can't judge from what you hear from the media and other people. Also, Nigeria. A lot of people warned me about Nigeria, but oh, absolutely loved it. Did you find that the people of one country were warning you about the next? <laughs> yeah. That is absolutely right. You know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, the people in Congo would tell me, oh, don't go to Gabon. They're all killers. They're all thieves. Uh, yep, every country. It's not a good picture we have of our neighbors, is it? It's not a good picture, is it? But I think, I, I mean, from a positive point of view, I think they're just trying to make themselves, uh, you know, uh, feel a bit better. You know, and I think that's one great thing about doing this sort of thing and filming it and, and getting it out to the public is that it shows the world in a different light because there's something about motorcyclists, I mean, uh, travelers, I guess, in general, but in particular motorcyclists that seem to see things how they are, you know, and, and just like you said, you can't listen to the garbage that comes out. You can't listen to the, the fear mongering, even the fear mongering from the, from the country before the one you're going into. And they present it in a way where people look at it, and, and I hope that, that what they're seeing is that the world is really made up of a lot of people with the same wants and desires, and it's just sort of ruled by a few that it may be slightly off kilter. I completely agree with you on that one. Um, as they say, you know, people are looking for bad news. What you see in Africa is famine or terrorists or, you know, uh, child soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think people don't realize that there's a normal life going on there and those people have got the same worries that we have and you know bringing up their children getting them to school you know day-to-day -day things uh, and everyone was incredibly welcoming and as soon as you break down that barrier and i agree with you i think motorcyclists tend to get into that situation a lot quicker um talking to the locals getting to know them and um yeah and you 99.9 percent .9 of the time you get a wonderful welcome what was your average day like my average day was pretty much riding. Um, I'm, I'm not a fast rider. I'm not a speed rider, which I think is probably a good thing because in Africa, you're not just dealing with other drivers. You're dealing with children walking to school, using the road um, as a path. You've got goats. You've got livestock. You've got wild animals. You've got trees across the road. You've got cars without headlights. So, I mean, by its very nature, traveling on the, those roads, you have to go very slowly. So, I mean, I could, have, I could be riding five or six hours and not cover a great deal of distance. But Spencer, you, you'd mentioned you've, you were camping the whole way. Um, your morning starts with getting your camp together, which I'm, I'm sure at first seemed to you to be rather awkward, cumbersome, but after a while you get into your routine. And it's, it's that sort of routine that I'm curious about. You know, the getting up in the morning, the making your food, you have locals nearby. Sure. What, what I did mainly was if I felt safe in an area and relaxed, um, I would just camp in the open. But if I wasn't sure where I was or, you know, just not feeling too good, sometimes I wouldn't even put my tent up. I would just lie on top of it in the bush and, you know, just, just to be a bit more hidden away. Uh, my routine basically would be to get up, uh, eat a little bit of breakfast. Um, I had a little tiny camping stove so, you know, I could have a hot cup of tea and then I generally survived on uh, cans of sardines and bread, actually. Did you feel safe? Because you mentioned about when you felt safe. Did you feel safe overall? To tell you the truth, I felt, I felt safe everywhere except in the Democratic Republic of Congo on one particular occasion and in Kenya on one particular occasion.
what did it feel like to feel unsafe? Um, well, my arrival there, I was welcomed. I was walking down the road. I'd left my bike uh, where I was staying, which was a little camping area. And a car pulled up and a chap said to me, we are the police. Can we please see your ID? I said, I don't have my ID with me. It's, um, it's by my bike. He said, it's illegal to not have ID. Can you please get in the car? And he lifted up a handgun just above the window level so I could see it. And I realized that these were not policemen. I said to him, look, I'm terribly sorry. I'm going to walk to the South African embassy and you can follow me there if you want to. And he spat in my face and they drove off, uh, which was very unpleasant. Mm, yeah. Is it at those times you want to give up? No, it's it sort of makes makes me want to carry on even more because uh, ma- majority of people are absolutely wonderful. So you don't really want to let a couple of, of idiots uh, ruin an amazing trip because you can find them in any country in the world. What was it like for wildlife? It's one thing Africa is, is known for. And, and I often wonder how much you're going to see on the bike. That's a good question. Uh, a lot of the game reserves, uh, actual game reserves, obviously where you'll see most of the animals, they don't allow motorbikes. But in Etosha, in Namibia, they did allow me, which was absolutely stunning because I saw a lot of animals. But my my favorite memory, I was in Gabon. And for a change for me, I was actually riding too fast. And I was thinking to myself, no, this is getting dangerous. I must slow down and relax a bit. And I went around the corner and there was a chimpanzee sitting in the middle of the road. And it was just absolutely fantastic. He didn't stay there for very long. He didn't like this six foot four white guy on a motorbike. But uh, it was just that experience on your own, no one else around for hundreds of Ks. And there's a chimpanzee. That, that, that's the one that really sticks with me. How do you capture that sort of thing on film when you're by yourself? I didn't capture that one. I wasn't quick enough. So what do you do? Like, I, I know that, you know, when you're filming, I mean, you know, even the little bit that I do, I know it's such a pain. It really is. It can take an afternoon trip and sort of turn it into, well, a bit of a, a job, so to speak. And I, I can't imagine what it'll be like to ride for nine months around having that pressure as well, knowing that you need that footage. You're going to have to get as much footage as you can. Absolutely. It was a bit like that. But I I enjoyed it because what you can do is you're all alone in your tent in the evening, um, not really anything to do. So you have the pleasure of uh, going back on the footage that you had during the day. And it gives you a a bit of a boost. And also, I was, although I did do it in nine and a half months, which is pretty quick, uh, I didn't feel as though I was under any great pressure because I wasn't spending a great deal of money. Did you have a deadline? Was it planned to be nine months? It was planned to be eight, uh, but because of the uh, a problem that I had in Kenya, it was a little bit longer than that. But yeah, it was nine nine months, two weeks. Well, you alluded to uh, bullets or, or gunfire. I forget exactly how you said it, but um, you did have a problem um, in Kenya. Do you want to tell us about that? Certainly I will. Um, I was in northern Kenya as an area between Marsabit and Isiolo. It's about 500 kilometers of dirt road, and there is no houses or anything. There's no one around. Uh, I saw these three guys on a hill, and, you know, I just waved to them, and one of them immediately pulled up an AK-47 and started shooting. Uh, the bullets went, hit my swing arm, the back of the bike, the tire came off. Um, I fell off the bike managed to jump back up, looked back. They were All three of them were running down the hill after me. I thought, okay, well, this is it. I'm dead. Pressed the electric start. Luckily, the bike started, rode off on the rim, got around a corner, drove straight into the bush, 
lay the bike down, lay down there myself and just stayed there and stayed there and stayed there until I was absolutely positive that they, they hadn't found me. And then I walked, I'd say, 12, 12 to 15 kilometers and I found a Catholic mission and there was a German priest there who helped me out. I have to confess, uh, I did crack up a little bit when I got to him and I realized I was safe. The police and army turned up and they wanted to go back to where I'd been. And I said, look, these guys shot me last night. I've been in the bush all night. They're not going to be standing there waiting, saying, oh, no, it was us that shot him. But they insisted. They were all drunk. Um, we went back. They behaved like Rambo for about 15 minutes and then said, oh, no, he's not here. Um, and then on the way back, they were kind enough to show me a cross on the side of the road. And they said, oh, this is where a Chinese construction worker got shot through the head last week. And I found out from the, the chief of police that 300 people have been killed on that road in four years. Oh, man. And why so much? It's just an area where they train Somali bandits. I'm sure you know all about the pirate situation in that area. Um, and it's a fairly lawless area. There's not many people around. So it's, it's easy pickings. And unfortunately, Kenya, as we know, is a massive tourist destination and a beautiful country, uh, but they keep it under wraps. They keep it hidden. In fact, the Kenyan television and newspapers interviewed me about it, uh, made a big show of it, and then they didn't show any coverage. That's interesting, but I guess there's a lot of money at stake there. that They, they don't want to be terrorizing everyone or scaring everyone off. I agree with you, and I absolutely understand why they did it. And I, I myself, unfortunately, I do have to tell the story, but I don't want to put Kenya in a bad light. It was, as I said, it's three guys. Uh, it's not the population of Kenya, and they were the rest of them were fantastic, especially after the shooting when I was a bit traumatized, managed to get to Nairobi. People were bending over backwards to help me. It was uh, very humbling. For those who know Kenya, what area was it? It was in Marsabit in northern Kenya. And did you know that the area was a, a hot area before you got there? I have to confess it was partly my fault. You're not supposed to travel from that northern border down to Isiolo without an armed convoy. So what they do is at six in the morning, they get all the taxis and the buses and the trucks and the odd overland traveler, not really anyone, and you go in convoy. Now, I waited two hours while they were loading goats onto the roof, etc., etc. And I went to the army and I said to them, do you mind if I leave? And they said, on your head be it. And then I got shot at. Wow, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to feel bad about, isn't it? It was a bad decision on my part. Um, I should have relaxed a little bit and waited for the convoy. But, uh, you know, it happened and, and I'm still here. So <laughs> You grew up in Africa. Do you, because um, everyone says Africa moves at a different pace, you know, that there's, um, when it comes to time, for instance, you know, getting visas or getting anything done for that matter. Um, I, I'm surprised you sort of weren't in that mode already. Um, the thing about Africans, they're so polite, um, and you're, you're bang on correct about that. The pace of life is a lot slower. Uh, it's very important to greet people when you meet them, and then you go through this ritual of how are you, and how's your family, and how's your health. And I actually like it. I like it a lot. Um, but if you, if you start getting uptight about bureaucracy and things not getting done, uh, you'll, you'll put their backs up. Um, you really have to just accept where you are and the pace of life is different. I waited at the border of Angola for three weeks uh, lying on a piece of grass before they got me a visa to go through. 
Wow, that's a long time. Why would they get their back up? Is it is it because you're insulting the way that their country works, or I, do they not like you to point out the fact that it that it is slow and they know it and there's nothing that can be done at this point? I really believe that uh, tourism is at an absolute minimum in Angola, and if you look at it, you know, it, it it's in a bit of a state, and I think they just don't want people reporting it at this at this very moment negatively, and. Uh, I'm kind of glad I went there because in my book and in my programs, it's in a very, very positive light because I love the place. So I think they're kind of, a, in a way, they want tourism, but at the same time, they're a little, a little bit worried about the reaction. When your bike was shot up, you were obviously in need of repairs. How long did it take you to get parts for your motorcycle? It took about two weeks. Um, but after that, I still had another week because I had broken ribs. And I'm sure you can imagine as a rider, it's not pleasant coughing when you've got a broken rib. It's even less pleasant riding a motorbike on a dirt road. Yeah, where every little bump sends that shot of pain up through you. Absolutely. Usually a trip like this changes people. They go through um, probably many changes and um, some of them very large. Usually someone who comes off a trip like this will have a, an idea of what point that they had a change and, and uh, where something happened in the trip or something that happened to them. You did the entire trip expecting the same. That's a great, great question. I'll tell you what, it took me the whole trip until I had, I don't know what you would call it, an epiphany or something, uh, and that was actually in Spain. I had a sort of reverse culture shock because I was so used to being on my own. I was so used to being in the bush and, and washing in rivers, et cetera, et cetera. And when I got to Spain, everything was so organized and clean and um, I couldn't really cope with it very well. And I sat down on a beach one day, I remember, and filmed myself. And it sounds a little bit pre pretentious, but I think um, I sat there and thought to myself, I've actually got to be a little bit nicer to people. Uh, I can be a little bit short with people, and uh, I, I don't like sort of arrogance in people. And I, I, I guess it made me think about myself, uh, but also made me think about Africa and how amazing it is. And you captured this on film for the program? I did. Um, and uh, Travel Channel told me that they were in tears. How do you feel about people seeing your innermost thoughts, especially after you've done it, you've spoken to the camera and you let it go? It's kind of difficult. Uh, it, it's, it sort of happened. I didn't realize that I was being so emotional. I was just trying to write, got to film today, got to film today. But when they looked at the programs, they said, no, the... The strongest point about your series is that you are so emotional. You show the highs and the lows of an adventure rider. So I took that as a compliment. Kind of embarrassing, especially if you shed a tear and you're supposed to be a hard nut biker. But, I mean, it's, it was reality, really, I suppose. And when your bike was damaged, did you manage to film any of that? I'm yes. clearly not that your bike getting shot. I realize that, but no, not the shooting. But we've got all the we've got all the footage of the bike, the damage, the bullet hole, um, the repair, etc. All of it. And you said you, you you sort of fell apart when you when you realized that you were safe. I mean, has that done any sort of long term damage for you? I don't think so. A lot of people have asked me that. I mean, I did get phoned up. Um, as soon as I was in, in safety and, and back in Nairobi, of course, my family phoned you know, and said, give up if you want. 
uh, Travel Channel phoned and Diesel Films phoned and they said the obvious. Did you get it on camera? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that wasn't very pleasant, but I did have a giggle. Um, no, it, it, I didn't want to stop after that. I wanted to just keep going. But it, what happens is the adrenaline's in there and it only it takes a couple of weeks, really, and then you're riding along and you, suddenly you get a, a slight feeling where you're not feeling too comfortable. And I guess that's the aftermath of it. But as far as uh, psychological problems are concerned, I think I'm okay. <laughs> well, that might have to be assessed by someone else. <laughs> we that might have to talk about that again. assessed by someone else, and I don't <laughs> want to hear what they say. <laughs> Throughout the trip, or, or let's say after the trip, have you changed in any real big ways? Uh, I, don't, I think I've... <sighs> I think I've possibly become a bit more sensitive to people. But the funny thing is, I'm, and I'm sure you've had the same, you can go on a trip and it doesn't matter how long it is, when you, when you get back from it, it's, it's kind of over. And then you're moving on from there. And I've always been like that. So it, I really didn't have any time to think because I was trying to get things organized so that I could make this a career, really. So when you say a career, you're talking about doing something else next. Yes, I've... Uh, I'm in negotiations to do 10 programs in Central America and 10 programs in Asia. And these are motorcycle programs? These are all motorcycle programs. It'll be Central America Motorcycle Diaries and Asian Most Motorcycle Diaries. They're planning on making it a long-term series. That's very exciting. And this, again, is you going mainly by yourself? Or once it starts to get big like this, do they send the crew along? Actually, that's really interesting. It's going to be exactly the same. Uh, I, I didn't insist, because you can't insist to these people. I asked if, if we could keep it the same sort of format. I didn't want a film crew. Uh, fine if they come along to a couple of countries, but if I break down, I don't want them to help me. I want to stay on a budget. Uh, I want to camp, and I want to film myself. And luckily, they were very responsive to that, and they said, yep, yeah, no problem. And will you be riding a Yamaha again? I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get the exact same bike, the updated model, because you know what it's like when you get used to a bike and you get used to its quirks and the way it, the way it moves and handles. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really like to take on a, on a different bike because it's a learning curve and you, you're having to deal with different countries, different terrain anyway. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have the same bike. Well, let's talk about the trip, for instance, for, for a second here. Um, what sort of things did you learn about traveling through Africa that you didn't know when you went on the trip? Possibly the biggest thing I learned was that you have to adapt radically quickly. Because strangely enough, as soon as you go through a border, you're in a different country, but the food changes, even the roads change, the people change, the language changes. So you have to be really really adaptable uh biggest thing i learned be polite to everybody how about your border crossings how did you handle border crossings border crossings were a nightmare and uh you you just can't get frustrated it, it's red tape red tape red tape so as i said angola three weeks um it, it did hold me up in quite a few countries when you pull into a border and you're going to do your border crossing, you've got your bike and your bags and, and with you, all your camera equipment that you have to worry about, how do you handle that? How do you mitigate um, theft from the, the bike while you're going off to the, all these different buildings to get your paperwork done? Absolutely. What I did was I had a rucksack 
um, on my on my front, not on my back, because that's a stupid thing to do in Africa. Uh, I had a rucksack on my back with the camera in and my passport and my carnet de passage and the important stuff. Then on my bike trousers, I hid uh, by the bottom of my bike trousers, I hid some money. And then I had a false wallet that had expired credit cards, which was easy access for any thieves. Did you have to use that? Uh, the only incident I had was someone tried to pull the rucksack off my back in the street, but it was only a half-hearted effort. But then I realized you've got to have the rucksack on the front. Border crossings was a problem because when you're on your own, you can't say to someone, you know, can you just stand here and wait by the bike? And eventually, believe it or not, I threw both panniers away, the laptop, all my clothes, except a pair of jeans and a vest, and I left them in the, in the, in the Congo jungle. Uh, I just decided I just don't need all these things. Um, and I was much happier after that. The bike was lighter. I had less to think about. The handling was better. And I felt more relaxed. Would you say that's from overpacking or turning into a minimalist? Uh, a bit of both. Um, I think when I left, it looked like I'd thrown my whole house out the window and it had landed on my bike. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely overdid it there. And you do learn as you go along. It's funny because Austin Vince was there and Lois to see me off. And Austin made a little comment on camera that uh, Spencer will learn that he's taking too much. And he was right. <laughs> Well, it seems to be everyone does it. And, and I think everyone who does it realizes that we all do it. As much as you know, I mean, I've spent most of my life doing outdoor activities and packing light and doing all that. But still, yet when I get ready to go somewhere, I find myself looking at my kit and saying, it's just too much. <laughs> this is absolutely true. And then you suddenly spot something else and you think, oh, I might need that. And I might need that. And the list becomes massive. But uh a recommendation I would possibly give to people who are going on a long trip, keep it to an absolute minimum, especially clothes. You know, it's not a fashion show. You can buy a, a, a new T-shirt for a dollar or two once the other one's got holes in it. Um, you know, just small things like that. Uh, unnecessary equipment. I mean, I, I was given two tripods, which I ludicrously drove around with for a couple of countries, but then realized, why the hell do I need this? Excuse the language. Um, so, you know, you, yeah, you shed things as you go along and then you end up a man in a bike. <laughs> it's, uh, it's surprising somebody hasn't made some jokes about, you know, the trail of gear so you can follow the track of the motorcyclist. This is true. You could pick up other people's stuff as, 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 as you go along. Well, there's an option, isn't it? Start out with nothing and just follow someone else's route. Yeah, it'd be a bit like uh, in Amsterdam where you can borrow each other's bicycles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. So you, you came out of this with a great story and you've written a book. Tell us about the book. Yeah, the book is called The Japanese Speaking Curtain Maker. It's quite... Whoa, whoa, a hang on a second. So are we, are we talking about the same thing, Spencer? We were talking about a motorcycle trip. Say that title again. It's The Japanese Speaking Curtain Maker. You're going to have to explain that one. I will explain. Um, obviously, like you said, not much continuity there. The DVD and the programs are all the same and my website's all the same. But the book, um, I, w I did this trip, nine and a half months, thinking it was going to completely change my life. Got back to England, didn't have a job, uh, running out of money, thought, okay, before I become an adventure motorcyclist, I better make some money. So I went to the local job center 
and uh, spoke to this woman and I said, look, I'm, I'm desperate for some work just to tide me over. And she said, I'm afraid at this present stage we have no jobs on our books except we have one here for a Japanese-speaking curtain maker. So I said to her, well, I don't look like one of those and I'm not too good with curtains, but thanks anyway. I walked out and I thought to myself, uh, nine and a half months have gone full circle and I'm back to this and this is the job I got offered and uh, I just loved it so much uh, I called my book that and my book sort of ends in that way as well that's sort of interesting you know you people go on trips like this and and quite often people sell all their possessions to go on the trip to do the the adventure and then you come back and you're sort of back to square one was it at that point that you decided you wanted to be a full-time adventure yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the idea was, was there before I went. Um, I was I was working all day doing construction, and then I was doing private teaching English in the evenings, and I was also working in a bar, and that was for two years, uh, doing sort of 15, 16 hours a day to raise the money. So it was very important to me uh, that I could try and make some sort of success of it. And then when I got back to England, uh, I'd obviously run out of money, so, yeah, I had no choice but to do that. But I think it's a, it's a slow feed sort of thing. But uh, in the last three weeks, it has escalated phenomenally. Which has? Uh, the, the, the interest that people have shown. I, I've, I'm nonstop. So I'm really, really pleased at, at the reaction. Well, that's fantastic. When is it aired to or when is it planned to be aired? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's aired on the 8th of November. So it's a couple of weeks from now at seven o'clock. That will be a double bill. So it'll be the first two programs on there. And then uh, weekly after that, the other programs. But it will be repeated um, quite a lot, I suspect, uh, as is the nature of the Travel Channel. And it's also on Sky and Virgin. So you're basically on the verge of becoming a movie star or a television star. Uh, don't embarrass me. I'm going red here now. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just hoping to make a career really, and to continue with these trips and make these other programs. So, whatever comes with it, comes with it. But uh, for me, it's the absolute pleasure of talking to people like you and uh, doing the riding. Well, the reason I say that is because all of this uh, changes people and all of this changes what we're doing as well. And, and that's why we, we've talked before on this show about filming your adventure and what it takes to film the adventure. And I, I sort of mentioned that to you a few minutes ago. And and how it, it becomes intrusive or is it non-intrusive depending on the person or do you focus more about filming? Um, clearly with this, there's going to be some things that you won't be able to control and, and a bit of fame maybe one of them that will go with it but also you've got your pressures of your production company does that worry you at all that that somehow this adventure that is so exciting and so visceral at this point so raw could be turned into something that might just become work a day maybe even uh difficult to handle sure i think i'm beginning to learn a little bit about that already uh I'm, I'm, I'm 10, 12 hours a day answering emails and uh, dealing with the company, dealing with the DVD, the artwork, uh, the programs, the music, everything, because they've been really good. They've involved, me, they've involved me a lot in the whole thing. But as you said, I'm not famous. So I'm, I, it's a learning process for me. And uh, luckily, I have got people on my side that can help me and say, think, you know, say, you can't say that, Spencer, or you can't do this. So yeah, mistakes will be made. But uh, I'm just hoping people will enjoy enjoy the new series, actually. 
you mentioned that for this next series that you're going to do, or next couple of series, that you requested to keep it small, uh, to keep a, mainly filming by yourself, of yourself. Do you have other parameters that you picture these adventures sort of fitting into? Uh, I, I just feel as though, I mean, Central America is going to be such an exciting place. And I think having a crew there, not that I know, of course, but I think having a, a crew there would sort of change the vibe because you've got a few people around and people do behave differently on camera. I mean, I've, I've spoken to on this trip a, a couple of people. They've given me some amazing insights. And then I say to them, oh, can I film you saying that? And as soon as, as as the camera's on, everything changes. The ethos changes. Uh, people are not comfortable on camera. So, uh, yeah, and it was the same for me, I have to admit. At the beginning, I was useless. But uh, you have to learn quickly. And uh, hopefully I've improved enough to make a worthwhile program. So what would be the goal for, for these new series? Is it just to travel and explore? Is it people? What is it? Well, unfortunately, I've been told that the, the series that's coming on now, my Africa Motorcycle Diaries series, is about me. And that's what they liked about it. And that's what I don't like about it. So it was more the transition that I made and the emotions I went through. But on top of that, trying to show Africa in a positive light, which was quite difficult after the shooting. But when you add up the other 33 countries, I think it comes out as a balance. So it's a combination of things. It's to try and get more adventure motorcycling on television, uh, to pr produce a career for myself, and to show people a, a different way of traveling rather than in a car or a high-budget program, you know, that kind of thing. I often wonder if companies like this um, that produce TV programs are really interested in more than just the, the sensationalism or, or, or even you could say, you know, that, um, that reality television thing that seems to be so popular nowadays. And you just mentioned that they're, they're really interested in you and what you go through. Is it the sort of the attitude they could sort of care less where you go as long as you get yourself into some sort of grief and have to work through it? <laughs> uh, well, I think that's possibly true to some extent. I, I'm not a fan of reality TV, which sounds really ludicrous after what I just said. So possibly on the next program, Central America, I'm going to try and steer it a little bit more away from me. And uh, as I've learned a lot more, I'll be able to do a, a, hopefully a more professional filming job. For those who are interested in doing something like what you've done, and not so much going into the filming, but the adventure around Africa, because there's so many dangers and it's difficult and you need the carne to, to get from one country to or some countries to another, um, what tips do you have for someone looking at that? Okay, well, I would say that it's, it, it's not for everyone. Um, it really, you need to weigh up your own character. I mean, some people love being on their own. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those. I have no problem with that. I feel comfortable because I, I don't have someone else to rely on or someone else that I can let down and all the decisions are myself. But when you're planning a trip like this, you need to think about yourself. That's what I would say to people. Do you want to go in a group? Do you want to go with your best friend? Do you want to go with your girlfriend? Because uh, as we all know, relationships, no matter how strong they are, they can fall apart um, when you're traveling and under stress. So, you know, you need to gauge what you want out of something, how far you want to go, uh, what sort of stress you want to put yourself under. Uh, a lot of people would like to just cruise on a nice highway, whereas others would like to hit the really, really bad roads. But I suppose my biggest thing would, would be to say, 
just go for it. Just go for it. Go there. Um, I was very unlucky on one occasion, but it, it doesn't happen very often. And you will have amazing experiences and you'll meet brilliant people and, and it'll live with you forever. As you pointed out, though, with that incident of getting shot at, uh, it, it's poor judgment. You know, you made a mistake. You you decided to do something when you were warned not to, and, and I, you probably even knew in your gut that um, that you shouldn't be doing it. But but aside from that, what tips do you have about safety? How, how would, is there any way to keep yourself safer? There there is. It's it's a it's a pretty similar situation to wherever you live in the world. For example, if you're in certain areas in central London, uh, it would be ludicrous to walk around in the middle of the night, you know, with a, an expensive cell phone and jewelry hanging out everywhere. So really, it's a, it's just a case of being sensible and trying to gauge the situation. And also, you got to remember that we're riding in on a on a five thousand dollar bike or whatever it is, and to to those people that is immediately wealth and if we try and um, brandish it even more i mean a very simple thing uh, a, a chap i met in kenya he went to the atm cash machine pulled out some money flashed it all around and i said to him you can't do that you're showing someone five years wages so it's a case of being sensitive to other people's feelings and being careful gauging the situation do you try and get that sort of thing across when you're making your film? Yes, I do a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, I always give lots of little tips on, you know, where to store things, uh, how to approach people. Uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me, did you take a weapon? But uh, no, um, I think that's the worst, the worst approach. Uh, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And the best way to try and get out of it is through politeness. And if, you, if your time's up, your time's up. It can happen anywhere on earth. I can finish that nine-and-a-half-month trip, come back to England and get hit by a bus. Yeah, I've heard of people doing a round-the-world trip only to come home and, and get robbed. Exactly. Do you have your own YouTube channel? Have you been uploading videos for people to see what it's like? Yes, I've got, I've got a great deal of videos. Yep, I do have a YouTube channel and uh, also have uh, Africa Bike Adventure website, which has got all my promos, um, a lot of uh, photos that I think people might be interested in. Yeah, pretty much everything's uh, going on there. And for me and the two other people in the world that don't watch television, <laughs> is there any chance of us seeing it anywhere else? Uh, I can send you a DVD. <laughs> you sell the DVDs on your website so someone could order one from you. Yes, I, I will be. They're not, they're not on my website at the moment, but you can buy one at uh, dukevideo.com, which is worldwide. And, and they're available now uh, to order, but can only be picked up on the 16th of November. Well, that's fantastic. I would love a DVD because it sounds like something I would really like to sit down and watch. The website is www.africa-bike-adventure.com. And of course, we'll put all these links in our show notes as well. So you can just go to our website and, and find these links back to Spencer's website and the things that he's doing. Well, Spencer, that has been absolutely fantastic. I wish you the best of luck and we'll have to get you back on here, I, I think, after your next adventure in South America. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I do appreciate all the support and uh, I'll, I'll send you a DVD. I've been speaking with Spencer Conway. You can find out more about Spencer and his Africa Motorcycle Diaries by visiting his website, www.africa-bike-adventure.com. And of course, as always, we will have the links to his website and his YouTube channel on the show notes for this episode on our website, www.adventureriderradio.com.
Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Stuart Ball from the Great Australian Ride. We're going to find out about this amazing trip that you can join as well to uh, go across Australia. It could be a once-in-a-lifetime thing for you. Stick around for that. But first, I want to tell you about our website. you got to drop by our website if you haven't, lady, because we've done a whole bunch of changes. Elizabeth has been working nonstop on this thing, adding little bits and pieces to it. We've got some pages up with videos, some informational pages. So there's a lot there to it, and it's filling out all the time. But I, I want you to drop by and look at the, the page that's tagged as merch, which would be merchandise, our store. And we've got some books listed there. The, the books are really through Amazon. So if you buy one of those books, there's a, a small portion of the money that uh, you pay for your book ends up coming back to us as a commission. So it's great because you get to support the show at the same time. But the other thing, more importantly, way more importantly, is the t-shirts and stickers. We've got Adventure Rider Radio t-shirts and stickers available. So Christmas time is here. You got to buy yourself something, buy something for somebody else. Grab some t-shirts and stickers. Drop by the website, check them out. If you don't think they're really cool, well, then send us a line. Tell us why they're not really cool. But so far, we've had some great feedback on Facebook about them. So drop by, grab yourself a t-shirt or hat for Adventure Rider Radio and support the show. Australia is the driest continent on earth. It's also pretty empty, really. I mean, Australia is populated heavily around the outsides, around the coastline, but in the center, there's not a whole lot going on there as far as people goes. So it makes for an amazing place to ride, but it's extremely dangerous. Now, the person we're going to speak to next runs a race each year, a fundraiser, and running from Byron Bay to the west side of Australia, the most remote place in Australia. And as a matter of fact, what Stuart Ball claims is possibly the most remote place in the world. Now, why would you race from Byron Bay to the most remote place in the world? Well, listen to Stuart. This is Stuart Ball from the Great Australian Ride in Australia. In August, for the past five years, people gather to run a remote motorcycle event called the Great Australian Ride. The man behind the ride is Stuart Ball. Stuart, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Good morning, Jim. Thank you. Well, Stuart, this is, has been described as a, as a seven and a half thousand kilometer run. You guys are, are heading out for 21 days on this ride. This is incredible. You've got a, a group of 12 riders who are reading, heading out for these 21 days. And I, I know it's a charity event. Just give us a, an overview of, of the, how the event runs. Well, we, we put it out through, um, through our media channels and obviously through the website. It's open to anybody that's got um, their own road bike. Um, so the, the team is 12 and we take a support vehicle, uh, the support team's four people and, um, it usually draws very good, kind hearted people that want to do good. Some have been affected by SIDS, some infant death syndrome and lost a child. And, um, yeah, we, we, we converge at Byron Bay. This year is going to be the sixth, uh, sorry, 2016 is going to be the 6th of August on Saturday and away we go. You know, we have a lead rider that sets the pace and each day is um, just a different day of different activities to get ultimately to the west side, which is Steep Point, which is probably one of the most remote places in the world, I'd say. It's uh, it's quite it's quite a place and uh, very rewarding. Once you get over that last sand dune, uh, to get it into Steep Point is 32.5 of dunes and it's probably the most difficult part of the whole trip but very rewarding once you once you see the sign and it's dramatic too the ocean just it just drops down about 200 200 feet down to the ocean there and there's whales and sharks and all sort of stuff swimming around there it's quite an awesome place to camp as well 
So you mean to say after 21 days of riding, you end up finishing in a remote place, probably the most remote place in the world? Yep. There's not a soul there. Uh, all you've got is a sign to say this is uh, Steep Point, Australia's most westerly point. Um, or you, see, you can sit on the edge there. It's just like a sheer drop. And it's quite bizarre to think that there's 26 million people in Australia and you're the only one sitting on the most westerly point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It just must be somewhat anticlimactic. I can't imagine driving all that way, riding all that way, and then arriving to find you're the only only one there. Where do they go from there? They've got to turn around and go all the way back? Well, we, we camp there. It's quite high. So uh, we, we camp there. It's dangerous too because the ocean can come roaring over the top of that. It's, you wouldn't think it, but it comes over the top and floods the camp area. So we've got to be a bit wary of that. Um, after that, it's 32 k's back out to a place called Hemlin Pools where we have lunch and we have like um, a trophy award sort of um, just to, to give out some trophies. We have one for the adventure, courage and freedom. So that's just something that's been become a part of goal. We also have a new helmet called the Helmet of Shane that seems to be – it releases a bit of tension throughout the days and we give it to the person that's made the most – you know, the most mistakes, and that just relieves a bit of tension at the end of the day. And I've got to wear this silly helmet for the rest of the night when we're having food and things like that. So it's just saying a bit of fun. That was a new thing. It just sounds like an amazing ride. How does someone get onto the ride? There's a website, uh, www.thegreataustralianride.com. Um, on there, there's a contact page. They send um, an inquiry through there. We can, we can send them the registration form or any information that they require. Like I say, now we get into a point that even with people with you know very little experience in the sand, by the time that we've put them through a couple of training weekends, um, the pace that we go at is 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 a moderate pace. And I've always sort of said that slow and steady wins the race with with Gar. Um, we have found that people, those that push, either will will either come to some sort of grief because we are crossing four deserts um, next year. Uh, we're going to do the French line, which is probably the most difficult track in Australia, and that's 550 kilometres of, I think it's 1,100 dunes. Um, and I just did that this year on my own. It was a solo on the KDM 990 uh, with 60 litres of fuel. So I've got that mapped out in my mind now, and next year we'll roll that out as a as an optional extra for GAR, for those that are more experienced and probably cap it at 650cc, because the bigger device is it's more difficult. And uh, we're going to run a second support vehicle across that French line, and it's something I've been passionate about for the last three or four years. And I really want to, I really want to get across there with the team, It'd be, and and then meet the other team, so the other team can split north, go up to Boulia, across the Donahue Plenty Track to Alice Springs, and we all converge at Alice Springs, where we've got about two or three days R and R. And so yeah, that's hopefully all in set for for 2016. You had mentioned to me before about um, Australia just being so big and w- with so many tracks. Describe that for someone who doesn't know Australia. It's vast. There's one word for Australia. It's vast, beautifully stunning. The deserts are just um, – there's, there's one desert called the Great uh, – on the Great Central Highway, there's the Gibson Desert, a place called Docker River, which is a, a lot of Aboriginal communities. Um and you pull up there, and particularly if you're on your own, it's different. I found it's different when you're on your own, or if you're with a group, it's it's completely different. The feeling of of being on your own and being totally surrounded by nature is is quite. And then to be actually touched by it, by you know, you get eagles um, 
Westtail eagles that will come and look at you and they'll circle around to wonder what you're doing and then you'll ride probably 50k stop and it's the same bird you know and they're probably chasing you to think well if he put, falls down and dies then they've got something to eat <laughs> so you, you're connecting with a very raw i've found australia more so i've traveled to a lot of places but i find australia is very very raw and it really brings out another element and you really have to be in tune with the element and the senses yeah, it's quite – because everything on the coast um, of Australia is very organized and it's um, – everything's in place. I call it the matrix. So everything's in place, whether there's hospitals, um, lighting, electricity, all everything that you ever desire is there. But once you come out of that, you only have to step out of it for 200Ks and it's total wilderness, whether it be rainforest, desert, um Mountains. There are some mountains down in Victoria, like Kosciuszko. I just did that the other in May, and that was that was really cool. But the deserts really tend to have this profound feeling of solitude, and it really is a, a mirror. I call it sort of a mirror that re- reflects what, how simple life could be. You know, we tend to fill our lives up with a lot of stuff that's not really necessary on the coast. But when you get out there and you meet the salt of the earth people that have lived, born, and bred out there. You know, they're product of the land and they've been raising cattle for, you know, for generations. And they're in some of the most remote, harshest areas of the, of the world earning a living. They're, they seem to be very happy and having a good time. You know, there's hard times as well with droughts, but they get through that. They have a sense of, um, what's the word? They, uh, resi- resilience, an extreme amount of resilience that everything will be okay. And um, the drought could go on for four years, but the last thing they'll ever do is think about moving. They just get through it, and then the good times come. And and when the rain does come, it did in 2011, the desert just explodes with life. It's incredible, you know. And sometimes you'll stop in the Simpson Desert, and there won't be a grasshopper. Nothing. It's just dead. And and there's cattle sprawling out for 500 kilometers that have just died of thirst, you know. So you, you become very connected with with what's going on. And it heightens the senses to think I need to be on the ball here because it is a life and death situation. And there's a lot of people, you know, people have their cars have broken down and they've actually left the car on walls. And in summer, you'd only get 20, 40, 50 kilometers at the next before you you'd die first. That's the seriousness of it. So with Gar, we provide, we go in the wintertime um, and we provide food, water, all the accommodation, all the telecommunications um, to ensure a safe passage across the steep point. So it's real serious outback. Any sort of problem if you're out there by yourself. I mean, you just said you ran the the route by yourself on your KTM. What happens if you have a problem? Well, a couple of things. Really, uh, you've got to be resourceful. Um, you've got to you've got to really tap into what's in what what you can get your hands onto, and. I'd, I'd rather be staring at it than be looking for it. So with telecommunications, I always take a sat phone. That's my guardian angel. That's the number one thing that I always take with me. I like the sat phone because I can relay the information. I, I, I find I try not to cause any panic. So with a sat phone, I can relay the information, whether it's a mechanical failure or whether, whether I'm in trouble, whether it's a broken arm. or The only thing with a sat phone, you've got to be conscious to use it. Um, and that goes the same really with a spot tracker. I've just we've just taken on some spot trackers, and that's been a really good tool for friends and family to follow the team. Um, 
also as a location beacon. So if uh, you need require assistance from the police or the Royal Flying Doctors, they can pinpoint down to a meter where you are. So you could be lying there. I was on the French line waiting for 16 hours because I had a flat battery. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's really relaying that information to the police to sort of say what condition you're in, how much food, water, you know, this is, this is only if you really get into a problem. When we're running as a team, uh, where we've had it in the past is that we'd need spare parts. You know, we might be in the middle of the Straslaki Desert and a guy, has, something's happened to his bike. Um, I can ring the, the, the motorcycle shop in Alice Spring, which is about 1,500 kilometres away, because that's the closest shop. <laughs> you know, when you're in these remote areas, the closest shop could be three days ride away because 1,500, 1,600, 1,800 kilometres away. Um, but what we can do is put that bike on the trailer. I've pre-ordered the parts with a motorcycle shop in Alice Springs, and they'll be waiting for us once we get in there. We've got three days to get the bike sorted out before we go on the next leg. So we've actually split the country into four stages. Um, and we also do a send-off ride as well, which has been quite successful with raising funds for Sids and Kids. So when we leave Byron Bay, um, anybody can jump on. It's a, it's a bitumen day, sort of tar, tar black top. So anybody can jump on a bike and come out and enjoy the adventure and, and be part of it. And, and I think last year we raised $1,800 on the day. And every now and again, we'll get people that want to join us either. Like, for instance, there was a fellow that joined us from Bollum to Kalamala. And he had some really good local knowledge of tracks. And that was something that I really wanted to tap into. So his name was Hank, Hank Parker on a KDM 950. So it was good to ride with Hank and get some local knowledge of some of the tracks off the bitumen. And that just, I find on the on the bitumen, it's very boring. You know, your mind wanders and, it, and you become fatigued and there's, there's more chance of an accident. Whereas when you're off-road, the mind is just running all the time. You know, you just, the hype excitement is up and um, you tend to see more. It's a true Australia, you know, it's, uh, it's really good. And the tracks are really deep red. Uh, you're jumping over cattle grids. Uh, there's just so much more for the mind to be uh, to, to be taken in. The Great Australian Ride is set up as a fundraiser, and so far you've raised over a hundred and eighty thousand dollars, which is a that's a big chunk of money. How did it become a fundraiser? Good, good question. It never meant to be. Uh, I could never imagine. Five years ago. Um, was going through a bit of a tough time and, and I wanted to raise, I wanted to do something of some, some good value of true cause. And um, my daughter was born two months premature and it really seemed like a good idea to, to, to learn, to sort of uh, connect with, with my daughter and say, hey, let's, let's set something up here for the Royal Children's Foundation. And um, I, I had this idea of riding from east to west and I didn't know how it was going to go. Everybody was saying that you, you're never going to make it. And especially on a big bike too, because you had to take a lot of lot of fuel, food and water because of these areas. It's easier with the support vehicle because that carries all our gear now. We've got two fridges in there with cold drinks, plenty of food, snacks, and, you know, it's, it's carrying about two or 300 litres of fuel. But when you're doing it on your own, and it's the knowledge as well, it's not having once, – once you know what's up the track, it gives you so much strength and confidence once you know what's up the track. But for the first time, it's quite daunting, and you've got to get past your own demons – because everything's inside screaming, saying, stop, stop. <laughs> and you'll get to the first desert and you think, well, this is the point of no return. And you're fully fueled, ready to go. And it's just like a, a leap of faith. You take a deep breath and go. Um, and it tends to work out. Um, 
once we raised with the, with the fundraiser, it went up to about $5,500, which we were just blown away. And it was really great experience to share with Gabby. And after that, I sort of let the dust settle. It was quite, it was quite, um, really wanted to let the dust settle. And then the idea set in, how about, how about taking a team across? Because I've always been sort of been very uh, inspired by some of the early explorers uh, in Australia 150 years ago, John McDougal Stewart, Burke and Wills and people. So I was always interested in how it would feel to take a group across and what would what were the dynamics of that. And I got talking to a few people and one fella helped me out quite a bit. Uh, Jeff Barnes was was working for British Antarctic Survey, although it was cold and it's the different elements, but the, the scenarios were very similar and the isolation and the vastness. So with some of that advice, I sort of set up out and put it on Facebook that was going to do another team in 2012 from east to west. And I didn't think anybody would, would be mad enough to do it. And within two months, we had a full team and we raised $26,000 and we chose SIDS and kids. So I knew a couple of people that had lost children uh, to SIDS, and I realised that it, it's something that lasts forever, you know, until the parents themselves pass away. This this huge burden that they're carrying is going to be with them forever. And some um, parents separate uh, because of those issues. And I found with SIDS that the bereavement support that they provided was was helping not only the family, but the community. It had a greater picture. And, and, and since when we approached them, we were really enthusiastic. And they were bike they were bike people themselves. The founders are actually bike people themselves. So it just fell into place. And since that time, we've sort of continued with SIDS. And I couldn't imagine ever uh, raising the, for, within Australia for anybody else. The connection or the, the relationship we have with SIDS and kids is, is, is very strong. And uh, they throw themselves wholeheartedly into what we do. So they come down. Uh, I think the, the founders, we are talking because we've just purchased a truck, a fire truck that was stripping down and making it into the support vehicle. And I hear that uh, Michelle and Murray are looking to come across from east to west with us so they can actually see exactly uh, what it's like to go from east to west and the dynamics of the group and, and enjoy it. You know, they've never been across. So it's a lot of people, even though they're not into bikes, and we take people, whether they be a um, we take every year a qualified paramedic um, and also usually somebody that can do the filming and the photographs and that relieves the pressures of, of us and the riders to, to, to get footage. Um, so it's not really about the bike stuff too. It's a, a, Although you're riding every day, there's a lot of stuff going on that's nothing to do with bikes and it's just really meeting the people. And when you pull into like um, a cattle station like Tobamori on the edge of the Gibson Desert, you know, it's just – wonderful the people there are just so welcoming um this is another thing as well with droughts is that sometimes they're doing it really tough and they've looked into tourism now the, the government's trying to um some of these roads making bitumen to try and draw people out now even if that road was bitumen my, my belief is people are still got to get across those barriers of they're taking themselves out there into a, into a fairly remote place um so the Northern Territory government are really sort of pushing for tourism to get people out there to help uh, the economy, stimulate the economy in those remote areas. Um, places like Tobermory now, they're, they're, they're opened up to um, – and you've got to have some serious equipment too. You know, the car that you take, it really needs to be a four-wheel drive, uh, if you, especially if you're towing a caravan or a camper trailer of that nature. Yeah. 
Um, and bikes themselves, you know, the bike's got to be pretty much, you know, uh, you got to you're putting your life in, into the bike. You know, you got to have a lot of faith in the bike. <laughs> <laughs> so, the bike I've got is a it's a KTM 990 uh, Adventure. It's done. 100,000 was just to clicked over 92,000 kilometers. It's done five trips across the country on the same engine. You know, I think that's pretty, um, apart from the consumables, uh, tires, chains, sprockets, brake pads, all of that kind of stuff. It gets serviced regularly. Um, but it's just been a wonderful machine. It really sort of opens up on the, on the open tracks. Uh, it's just, there's just no other feeling. You feel every atom in your body is screaming alive. You know, it's, um, it's pretty awesome when you're flying over those dunes uh, and you just pull up, you know, there'll be a nice tree or a nice dune somewhere in the shade and we'll just pull up the support vehicle and everybody turns up and we get the sausage sizzle on the go and we just kick back for about an hour, have enjoyed a sausage sizzle, have a bit of a chat, a banter and away we go. We'll do another three or 400 clicks until we get to the camp or cabin or wherever we got organized for that night. What does it cost to join, and and what are the possibilities of a foreigner coming in and acquiring a bike for it? Yeah, hi. We we we've actually had um, quite a few few uh, people from overseas. We've had um, Sabine from Austria. Had two Aust- Estonian guys this year um, from New Zealand. We get a lot of Kiwis coming over. Um, so yeah, we're just branching into that, looking to buy some bikes ourselves, uh, and so with the option that they can buy them or they can hire them. We've got two guys coming from England. I, I mentioned before they're coming over from England, so they're looking to, to hire, um, and that can all be done through the website. Um, if they buy the bike, you know they can buy it on the east coast, get across to the west coast, and sell it in Perth. There's lots of bike shops in Perth, uh, or we can create the bike up. We do it as a uh, as an uh, optional. Um, we've got it sewn up for a, a, a motorcycle shop there in Perth that they provide the crate. It takes the morning. We just we, we just sort of head over there in the morning. Get the, and the good thing with it is that the guys can get all of their equipment, whether it be camping, helmets, whatever, and then they can just get onto the plane with, you know, jeans and T-shirt and away they fly, you know. So, yeah, we, we pretty much take care of uh, all the transport and things like that for the bikes too. And what does it cost to join? Uh, the registration for Gar this year or next year is going to be three thousand eight hundred, um, and that includes all their food, accommodation, and uh, all the backup support and telecommunications. What what they have to do as well is raise two thousand dollars through their friends and family for Everyday Hero <clears throat> or Sids and Kids. And once we get a rider that's registered, and they're happy with all the information, once they're registered and um, it then takes me about an hour just to set them up on Everyday Hero, which is a secure site that holds all the funds and deposits them into Sids and Kids' account. Uh, last year, the team raised forty thousand one hundred dollars. Uh, this year, we sort of targets around about fifty thousand dollars that we hopefully can can raise for Sids for them to keep on providing the support, bereavement support for for people that's lost children. Three thousand eight hundred dollars for twenty-one days. That seems very inexpensive. I mean, you couldn't. I don't know. Can you do it by yourself for that kind of money? That seems very low. Well, what what happened was when I look, I could I could make this into a, a full-time business, but uh, I am actually working. That uh, I do this. I say fifty percent of my time, and I'm very passionate about drawing people. I look at I look at how other things are run around the world and places like that, and I think to myself, I get more joy and satisfaction from someone that can jump on board, who's suffered from SIDS, 
Uh, they're 32 years old. They've got a full-time job. They're not a lawyer. They're not, you know, and that they can say this is for the ordinary guy can jump on board and got a shot at the title to go from east to west. You know, we try and cover all our costs. And in that, it's it's really a case of um, people just jumping on board, really, and enjoying the adventure. Yeah, it's not it's not it's a non-profit organisation. It's not really about uh, a business. From, from my point of view, it's really about getting people together uh, and enjoying the, the best what Australia can offer in in in, in adventure in the people. Um, some of the places that we stay at, they even say, "Hey, look, you know, whatever it costs, what you know, if it's a hundred dollars for you guys to camp." We'll donate that to Sids and Kids. You know, we go through there each year, and like I say, they look look forward for us us guys to come through, and they sort of join us as well. They'll come over and join us for a few beers and a chit chat, and they're just interested to talk to some of the guys, you know, of where they're from and what's drawn them to it. So, it sounds like just an amazing event. Tell me about India. Yeah, well, India's. Um, I went to India when I was when I was 21 in 1996, and and to be actually honest with you, Jim, I hated it. <laughs> it was a nightmare, a nightmare, and and although seeing that the Taj Mahal was just stunning, and I was sort of, it gets under your skin. There's a certain magic to India, and I felt I've got to go back. So I went back in '99, and I, and I really wanted to go to Everest. So I did Everest Base Camp first, come back to Andhra India, and I spent a little more money, and instead of the sleeper trains, I actually flew and stayed at a couple of hotels, and I just got so, I don't know, it was just a, a real magic to it, you know, the, just the way that the sun sets, and I think it's because of the smog, the two-stroke the two stroke smog just tends to set the, sun, <laughs> the sky so pink. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, what did you hate about it the first time, Stuart? Oh, well, I was pretty regimental. When I left England, I found it very difficult, you know. Uh, in India, it can take all day to get a ticket, a bus ticket, and... I think it was just that that notion of everything takes so so long that you're complete always hounded. I didn't know how to deal with with being the, the poverty side of it and people approaching you all the time. Um, yeah, that, that that were the two main things. Really, the sleeper trains as well. That was quite for thirty. You could travel a hundred kilometers in thirteen hours. You know, so. The second time was was uh, connected with it a lot more, and I got into I, I sort of got into um, people's houses. You know, the rickshaw driver there said he was sleeping outside the hotel. I had him for about a week, and he and he gets I, I sleep here, and he used to come up, wake me up in the morning, and said, "Right off we go. I'm going to go and see the sunset on the Taj Mahal from the, the riverside." You know, and it was, and then he goes, "Oh, I'll come and see my family," and then next thing the whole village comes out, and then you're talking to the doctor and. Seeing what problems, it really was a case then of seeing what problems were there. I said, well, we can do something about this. I can't do anything now, but maybe along the line we can do something about it. So I think that sort of stuck in my mind. And he's, he was sending me photos of, of the, how the village was progressing with some, with some water issues that they had and sewerage and stuff like that. And I've got into the trade that I'm a carpenter. And I think to myself, when I'm working in Australia, um, I think it would be more rewarding to be doing some of that work in India in a remote area that people, you know, just for the basic stuff, you know, we take so much for granted here, you know, in Western civilization that something so simple can mean a massive amount over there. And the size of the population too. Um, so that's what's really got the, 
the, the ball rolling with the great Indian ride. And we hooked up with a company there that's been established for a long time. And I said, look, I've got this idea. Would you be keen to sort of provide the bikes if we can get a few guys? So they said yes. And, and within it, – it's sort of taken three years to get it going. And then um, we, we organized uh, – we managed to get four Australians because it is a big ass, 30 days over 5,500 kilometers. And it's from north to south. So it's the, it's the other way for, up for India. Uh, right up from the very top of Kashmir and Himalayas, which is a pretty dangerous area too. They go up through five and a half thousand meters, so some of the highest. Well, I think it's the highest road in the world to ride. So there's a lot of issues to deal with altitude sickness, um, all the way down through the centre to Cape Coromandel, which is um, I've just seen the photos. The photos have been coming through for the last couple of days. It just looks spectacular. I've been so envious, and there's been four Australians that gone over. One of them was a good mate of mine, Reese. And um, that was raising funds for Plan India. It's uh, education of young girls. So uh, I think with my own daughter, what I've seen with education within Australia. Um, so we also opted to sort of go into that area of, of uh, fundraising for India. And I think with, with the education, with the knowledge and things that you can require as a, as a young kid, that will set you up for the, for the future. And I think, yeah, that's that's probably the best the best thing I could find with with India is, is to, to educate. So that's what we did this year, and we did a check handover in the Australian consulate. Uh, Reese is an ex diplomat from Spain and Papua New Guinea, so he was very well connected, and uh, he's probably better than at myself than uh, with with emails and um, putting that kind of thing together. So it, the photos look spectacular. I've, I've just we've just reset it. I think it's the fifteenth of September next year. And uh, hopefully we can get a team of t- 10 or 12 and I'll, I'll definitely be going because I, I can't sit back and watch an- another year of it. <laughs> well, I'm certain you've got a lot of people interested at this point. So where do they find the information? Well, you know, I'm going to put that information up on the Great Australian Ride website. I'm just stripping it down now to re- reset for next year. And we'll be putting all the Indus- India stuff on that too. Stuart, thank you very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and telling us about the Great Australian Ride. Magic. Appreciate you, Jim. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity and uh, yeah, wish everybody happy travels. And of course, that was Stuart Ball from The Great Australian Ride. And you can find out more about The Great Australian Ride and possibly get in there for next year. But you're going to have to hurry because remember, there's only 21 spots. The website, www.thegreataustralianride.com. And as always, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and check out the show notes for this episode. And special thanks to our show sponsors, Max BMW and Best Rest Products. Remember, if you're looking for something, drop by the sponsors of the show because they're supporting what you like to listen to. So definitely drop by them and support them as well. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. 
and Best Rest products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it, because it was a lot of fun. Don't forget to drop by the website, check out the new things we put up there, and especially grab those t-shirts and stickers. It is the holiday season. And when you grab those, you support Adventure Rider Radio. Special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who again, just like last time, is working away in the background. I really think she does this, honestly, just to get credit, because I have to say it. I'm looking over and I see her there working and I, I feel guilty. I'm just talking. Don't forget to drop by our advertisers. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Drop by our website. Drop by our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Twitter. We're at ADV Rider Radio. And of course, on Facebook, you can just find us. If you just search on Google, you'll come up with our website. Search for Motorcycle Podcast. Go give it a try. Search a, search for Motorcycle Podcast or variations of that and see where we come up. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. And of course, I, I can't. I mean, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't say to you, you know, drop by the website, click on the comment button. Of course we want your comments. We still want your comments. We get lots of them, and it's great. It really helps shape the show. And whatever you do, don't miss next week's show. You gotta make sure you're there. Get the download right away. Because next week we're going to Oh, I'm out of time. Well, you just have to wait till next week. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveler, motorcyclist and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 